Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. During today's program, we continue the final week of our series on life lessons from David, the man who would be king, with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we'll explore a message about understanding what ultimately matters. So turn with me in our text to 1 Samuel chapter 28. None of us can live lives of significance until we get a grasp of what ultimately matters. Some of us assume that fame or success in a given field of endeavor brings significance to our lives, or that peace and security and a sense of being fulfilled ultimately matter. Some of us believe that if we fulfill our deepest desires, that's what life is for. And so we give ourselves to what we believe is significant and because these things can become our gods and our goddesses. Our lives are reduced to the chasing of dreams that, even if we are to achieve them, will die with us as well. To live for these things is the same as the man or woman who lives an empty life with no goals or achievements at all. For as Solomon would say in Ecclesiastes 9.4, a living dog is more valuable than a dead lion. And once death has claimed us, all our deepest longings perish with us. And if you were a lion, your death will signify that the next generation of dogs have won over on you. 1 Samuel 28 is a chapter of the Bible that focuses us to think of what ultimately matters, what real significance looks like, and what it means to live a life of purpose, a purpose that endures. The chapter opens with the events in David's life that are reaching a climax. Verse 1 says, In those days the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you will know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. And so a great drama is enacted. We will remember that David, in fear for his life, has gone over to the Philistines and has come under the protection of King Achish, the king of one of the Philistine royal cities, that is, the city of Gath. And now the war has started, and David is expected to fight for the Philistines against Israel. The next chapter will pick this up, but the reader might well ask here, what will David do? Will he actually fight with the Philistines, or does he have in mind to turn and murder Achish and fight against the Philistines in the heat of battle? What will he do? Well, stay tuned. We're going to deal with that tomorrow. And as this drama of a great war with Israel is about to ensue, the Bible tells us of another piece of information. Verse 3 simply says that Samuel had died and all Israel had mourned for him and that he was buried in Ramah. Now, we're already told of this back in chapter 25, but it's repeated here so that the reader, that is we, will not fail to appreciate that Samuel is dead and he's buried and that the period of mourning is now long past. And so these two things make the background of our account. A war is brewing and David will have to put his life on the line if he is to stand with the people of God. And Samuel is long dead. And with that, Samuel and David are swept from the picture and are not the focus of this chapter. Instead, the scene changes and the chapter focuses on Saul, the king of Israel. We begin by noticing where the troops are lined up. The Philistines have set up their camp and military fortifications at Shunem, and Israel is facing them at a place called Gilboa. 
Gilboa has a mountain, and it would be an excellent place for Saul and the military leadership with him to survey the size of the Philistine army. They stand on a secure, elevated place and look down at the valley and get a sense of the size of their opposition. And to their alarm, the army is massive. One more thing needs to be added. The place where the battle was to be fought was on the plains of Jezreel, or what the book of Revelation later will call the Valley of Armageddon. Throughout biblical history, a great many decisive battles were fought there. Reading this account from a New Testament perspective gives the reader a sense of something ominous, something that signals the end of the age. And for Saul, this is the end of his age as king. This is the day of reckoning. But Saul is desperate. He senses utter ruin, and he is not ready for this. Verse 6 says, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. That's a telling line. The Urim was some kind of a device, and we're not completely sure how it worked, but the priest used it to discern the will of the Lord. But as we remember, Saul had killed the priests at Nob, and in his defying of Samuel, Saul had also distanced himself from the prophets. He has no one left to tell him what God might be saying. He is now alienated from God. And then in verse 7, a verse upon which everything in Saul's life will now come to a climax, it simply says, Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. Now, as we ponder his statement, we fast forward to the actual encounter of Saul and the witch of Endor, and we notice that Saul has disguised his appearance so that she will not know who he is. And in verse 9, we read, The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? We have noted in our study of the life of David that the king of Israel was entrusted to carry out the commands of the law. At this period in Israel's history, his major role was to complete that which was left undone from the time of Joshua. He was to drive out all the nations that Moses had commanded to be driven out of the land. And one of the reasons for this is found in the end of the book of Joshua. If Joshua does not drive out the nations that lived in Canaan, then, according to Joshua 23, verses 12 and 13, these nations would become a trap and a snare for Israel, and eventually Israel would be enticed into idolatry from these nations. And this would bring the wrath of God upon them. And so one of Saul's jobs was that he was to lead the battle against idol worship. He was to end it. Indeed, when we read Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 to 12, we read, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Now, while Samuel was alive, Saul had listened to Samuel's demands, and he was, in fact, enforcing God's commands. But now, in an hour of desperation, he is turning to the very evil that is communicating with the dead that God had so utterly and completely condemned. Compare David and Saul. David had been driven away from his inheritance in Israel by Saul and yet refused to participate in pagan practices. Saul, on the other hand, lives in the promised land and, like David, was facing his greatest crisis and turned to the very pagan practices that brought the anger of God upon the pagan nations that lived there in the first place. 
Now, before we go on, I want us to trace three stages of Saul's downward spiral. In his first great sin, he loses his dynasty, which was a severe blow. And in his second great sin, he loses the kingship, which is even more devastating. But in this third great sin, he loses his soul, not just the kingdom. And it is this, Saul, the damned human being, facing his own death at the hands of a massive Philistine army that makes this chapter so foreboding, so frightening, so overwhelmingly solemn. But we might wonder, is Saul really damned here? In 2 Chronicles 33, King Manasseh, a man who seems so much more evil than Saul, repents and seems to find forgiveness and salvation. Why not Saul? Well, the answer is given in 1 Chronicles 10, 13 to 14. It says, so Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. But we might protest he tried to seek guidance and God was not answering him. But Saul could have at this moment thrown himself unreservedly on the mercy of God, but he doesn't. And here's why. Saul thought his greatest problem was the Philistine battle line that he was facing and not the fact that God was not speaking to him. And that, my dear listener, is a word for all of us. It's so easy to think that our greatest concerns are our health or our finances or our jobs or our acceptance among our friends or passing that exam that gets me into med school or even finding significance in my life. But that is not our greatest problem, even in the least. Our greatest problem is God and our relationship with Him and the state of our eternal souls. Death, well, it might be avoided for the moment, but it is a fact. Whether you're ready for death or not, it is coming. Your issue is God. How sad it is when most of our prayers and our hopes and our dreams are taken up in the temporal, not in eternal matters. And for Saul, the reality of the Philistines and his need for supernatural help in this battle was a more pressing concern than the fact that God was not speaking to him. And in this, he was a fool. And all of us who think like Saul are fools as well. And when we come back, we will see that Saul gets a picture of a life beyond the grave and of the certainty of his imminent death and the consequences for his own sin. Join me as we come back. As we near the climax of these life-altering events in David's life, it's interesting how the story now shifts to Saul. From today's message so far, we're beginning to grasp the significance of knowing what really matters in life, in every human life. And that issue is what we do with God. When we come back, Dr. Neufeld wraps up this story to teach us what we must learn about the end of Saul's life. Theology isn't just for pastors and Bible experts. It's for everyone seeking to better understand the God of the Bible and the depth of His love for us. And one of the most mysterious, intriguing, and life-changing doctrines is that of God's providence. Once you grasp the reality that God is actively directing all aspects of your life, your faith will be revolutionized. To that end, we're excited to share that this month, Back to the Bible Canada is offering Dr. John's new book called In All Things, God's Providence at a special introductory price of only $5, or for the very first time, you'll be able to digitally download the entire book for free at backtothebible.ca. 
But you'll want to act now because after this month, the book will only be available at its regular price of $17.99 or downloadable for $3.99. So order your copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Before the woman engages in the seance, she wants assurances that no harm will come to her. She is deeply suspicious of the man who is before her. She senses he is not honest about who he is. But Saul is not interested in ending unbiblical practices. He wants spiritual help. He wants to communicate with Samuel. And as we were reminded in the beginning of the text, Samuel has been dead for some time now. Let's read 1 Samuel 28, 11 to 14. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, Bring up Samuel for me. And when the women saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You're Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. You know, several questions immediately come to mind. The first and most obvious, is this really Samuel? And secondly, do seances actually work? Well, let's answer the second question first. Do seances actually work? The woman in this account is shocked when she sees a man coming out of the earth and she cries out. She is as surprised as anyone. That might indicate that the woman was a fake and a fraud and that suddenly, to her outright horror, something she can't control is now taking place. That would mean that God simply intervened and took over a condemned ceremony and used it for his purposes. So, do seances work? Well, I know they're filled with hucksters and liars and deceivers and idolaters. I suspect there is far less communicating with the dead going on than deception and maybe, sometimes, demonic activity. Okay, let's say for argument's sake that this is what has occurred. But do dead people sometimes communicate with the living? You know, I do know that there are many in occult practices that do believe that this is the case. So let's see if we can solve this. The Bible utterly condemns all attempts to communicate with the dead. Why is this so? The answer is that it will always lead us away from God. Communicating with the dead is filled with deception, demonic intervention, and error. But more, our concern is not with those who have died. Our concern is with God. Our concern today should be with the revealed will of God found in Scripture, the Bible, and with the truths that God has declared, those are the things that are more than enough. All right, if we have settled this, what do we make of the account of the communication with the dead? Well, you remember in Matthew 17, Jesus leads Peter, James, and John onto a mountain, and there Moses and Elijah appear and speak with Jesus. At the very least, we should take this as a sure sign that the misguided doctrine of soul sleep simply isn't true. When people die, their bodies die, and their soul is separated from their body, but they, that is, their soul, continues to live, and they are conscious and aware of their surroundings. The lights don't just go off. In Luke 16, Jesus tells of the deaths of two men, an unrighteous rich man and a righteous poor man named Lazarus. Both are depicted as very much alive, one tormented in hell, the other carried off in glory to Abraham's side. And the condemned rich man is aware that his brothers are also living unrighteous lives, and they may end up where he is. 
And so the account before us depicts Samuel as very much existing. And there is no other way to read this account than to see Samuel having been sent by God to speak to Saul and that the woman is shocked because, well, she's a fraud and the situation is suddenly out of her hands. One more thing needs to be added before we move on. When the woman calls Samuel, not by his name, but believes that she sees a God, she is merely indicating her worldview. Many pagan religions thought the dead became gods at their death. And so, for instance, in Egyptian spirituality, dead pharaohs were therefore worshipped. But the Bible condemns the worshipping of ancestors or a fascination with the dead. Now, Samuel addresses Saul directly, not through the medium, simply brushing aside a condemned practice and asks why Saul has disturbed him. One gets the impression of Samuel being bothered by this imposition. Saul then explains that he's in distress and that God has turned away from him, and so he has no other option but to do that which he has now done. I can't turn to God, so I have to turn to the dead. You know, one wonders what Saul was thinking. If the real Samuel showed up, did he think that Samuel would offer him mercy rather than God? What Saul has missed is that his business is not with Samuel. Samuel can extend to him no grace at all. Only God can do that. Samuel can't help him. Only God can. And so all that Samuel does is reinforce the condemnation he has earlier given to Saul. In verse 16, And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Then in verse 17, For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. And then verse 19, Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And then finally, verse 20, Tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Of course, that doesn't mean that Saul will be in glory. Rather, he will find his place among the dead. Yeah, I'm reminded here that Saul sought grace from Samuel when the only place where he could have gone for grace was to God himself. If death was upon Saul, then he needed to appeal for mercy and repent of his sins and throw himself upon the kindness of God. You know, when we come to the New Testament, it's very clear that there is but one place where mercy is to be found. Christ, by his substitutionary death on the cross, has paid for the sins of all who look to him in repentance and in faith. If you have heard the gospel of Jesus but have refused it, your judgment will be not only for your rebellion against divine authority, but also the contempt that you have shown for the saving grace of Jesus. The only hope that I can offer you on this broadcast is the one found in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him turn to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. The day to repent of sins and seek God for mercy that he offers in the cross for your eternal destiny, that day is now. So many people misunderstand their greatest need. It's not your work, your health, your your safety, your income, or even your family. Your greatest need is the state of your soul in the presence of God. The tragic ending to the story of Saul is that verse 20 simply says, Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel, and there was no strength in him, for he has eaten nothing all day and night. Saul is simply paralyzed. And tragically, no one, not his men who are with him, nor the woman who is the medium, knows how to care for Saul or that which he truly needs. All they can say is, you need to eat. And of course, eventually he does. What should they have said? 
they should have said, since tomorrow is the day of your death, and you will surely stand before God and give an account for your sins, you need to repent and you need to plead with God for mercy and grace. And that, my dear listener, might be you. I don't know where you are right now. I mean, perhaps you're in your car, and if you are, you need to find a safe place to get off the road so you can pray. Do that now. And if you're at home, you need to get on your knees. And if you're walking and listening to a podcast, just find a place where you can sit by yourself for this very moment. At this moment, you need to say, I have important business that I need to do with God. Hear me. The day will soon approach when you will be ushered before God and you will give an account. And when you do, you will stand either with sins forgiven or not. So let's settle the matter right now. Come to God and simply say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and my account is not settled today. But I know that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I know that he took the punishment and the blame that I should rightly have received. And this day, O Lord, I believe, I believe that you died for me. And I surrender my life into your hands. Here, take my life and make it yours. Lead me all the way through life, even through the gates of eternity. Amen. And if that's your prayer, you need to find a Bible-believing church and find someone to help you to take first steps with Jesus. And if that's you, congratulations, you have been made new in Christ. Wow, John, you hit some really interesting subjects in this message today. And one of the things I'd like you to maybe to reflect on just a little bit more for myself and for others that might be listening, so what really happens when we die? Yeah, and let me just first of all say how important that subject matter actually is. Uh, so many saints, when they're going at the point of their death, are often confused, you know, what's going to happen to me now? And it's important for believers to be convinced of this. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So for believers, that the very point that we give up our bodies, we are in Christ's presence, and that we are aware of his presence, and that we join the company of worshipers. Now, the Bible talks about something called this intermediate state. Uh, that is, before we receive our final resurrection bodies, and after the death of this body, somehow we carry on living. And so the question is sometimes asked, what is that state like? And we don't know except this, that the Apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is better by far. So whatever the saints who are in this intermediate state is, they are in a far better place than we are today. So yes, they are aware of their presence. They are aware of the presence of the Lord. They are filled with great joy. I think that's the lesson to learn. The end of Saul's life in this passage is not only a tragic story, but it is a sober warning for us that our greatest need is to fall at the mercy and forgiveness of God. And that is it. The contrast between the choices made by David and those made by Saul could not be more stark as we've seen through these passages. I pray that this lesson has resonated with you in your walk with the Lord, but also that if you've prayed that prayer, God would make his presence in your life today unmistakable. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Faith is never disappointed. Back to the Bible Canada can testify to the hand of God in and through this ministry. As one of our listeners reports, we want to be part of what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada, not just in Canada, but overseas. That's why we support. Beyond a doubt, 
God will accomplish his purposes. He chooses to employ his faithful people as his hands. As we begin a new year, may I ask you to consider a financial gift to support and sustain this ministry? Or perhaps even consider becoming a monthly partner at the beginning of 2024. Your generosity allows us to enter into this new year fully supplied for what the Lord has in store for his kingdom. To give a gift or become a monthly partner, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.